Well, good morning and uh, welcome this morning to uh, Willow Park Church. We're delighted that you've come and joined us. And for those of you that have joined us online, we're delighted that you've joined us as well. What a blessing it is. And uh, if you've got your Bibles uh, as we get ready, turn with me. We've been in Mark chapter 8 last week. Uh, We're going to turn again to Mark chapter 8 and turn to verse 27. This is the uh, final part of our series in which we've called Jesus the Great Questioner. We've gone through many themes in this, um, this particular series. And of course, next week begins our Christmas period, Advent period, as we start to ramp up. Uh, and we get ready, of course, for Living Nativity. I noticed that there were over 2,500 tickets already gone for Living Nativity. That's pretty good, I think. You know, yes. Wow. Is, is that about right, Ian? Uh, sorry, I've got it wrong. Three thousand. So, so that's wonderful, isn't it? So if you haven't got your tickets, you better get online after the sermon, not in the sermon. And uh, you better get online and book those tickets. But more importantly, it's not about just booking those tickets. It's about praying about who you want to invite to come to it and who you're sharing the good news with and who you're encouraging to come. And so can I encourage you that as we step into this major outreach, and as we think about this, let's, um, let's really pray about uh, those people that we want to invite to come and to join us and to be with us. Uh, that's really important. And uh, what a great way to kick off Christmas with Living Nativity. We've got lots of uh, exciting things that we're developing, and um, it's, it's going to be great. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I'll read the scripture together and then we'll start to jump into it. Jesus and his disciples went on, a, on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others ones that you are prophet. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter's answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me, for whoever wants... To be saved, their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their lives for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with all his holy angels. 
And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you are standing here, will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now God will bless his word and speak to us through this. Well, if we go back to the beginning of that passage, and as we think about it, uh, Jesus and his disciples uh, um, went on to the villages around Caesarea of Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? This is a great moment. This is central in the gospel here. This is a central moment. And the question we are asking is, who, who... Do people say, I am? Who do they say, I am? It's a question. And then Jesus turns and says, who do you say, I am? So first of all, we find that having gone through the process of last week when we talked about the bread, about Jesus being the loaf, and we talked about the the reality that we take what we have, as it were, our crumbs of our life, our, our, our lives, whether that is the old walking stick, whether that is some stones, whether who we are, and we bring those to God. God can take whatever we bring to him and God can use it for his glory and multiply it and use it powerfully. And I believe that God wants to use each of you and I in remarkable ways through our prayers, through our worship, through the way that we evangelize and the way that we share. But suddenly they find themselves in Caesarea Philippi. If you don't know the geography, Caesarea is, is north of the Sea of Galilee, about 44 kilometers towards the Golan Heights and there towards the Lebanon and beyond that, of course, is the plain where Armageddon will happen. And, and this area was developed by Herod the Great. And when you go to Caesarea of Philippi and you stand there, what you are struck by is a remarkable uh, group of temples. If you imagine Knox Mountain and you look up at Knox Mountain and you see the steepest part of Knox Mountain, you know, where there's that kind of cliff area at the beginning, just, just sort of to the left, and it goes up, and you look at Knox Mountain, and you see people climbing Knox Mountain in their Lululemons, and they're going all the way up and all the way down, because that's what people do in Kelowna, walk around in their, their things. And they go up and down and down. Well, there were no Lululemons back then, but if you imagine on that cliff face of Knox Mountain... First of all, to the left, Herod the Great, earlier on, had built a marble temple to Julius Caesar. And there, the the emperor was worshipped right there. But next to that is 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 the court of Pan. And this really was a place, in this place, where people came everywhere to worship the god Pan. Now, if you don't know much about the god Pan, he's one... Well, we don't quite know if he's a son of Zeus or a son of somebody else, but there's a lot of debate about that. But Pan was one of the Greek gods. He's the god of the forest. He's the god of the hills. He's the god who plays the flute. He's the god who is full of mischief. He's the god that, that, that shepherds and farmers look to, the god of Pan. So this was a very occultic place. This was a very dark place. You worship the empire. You worship 
Pan, you worship Zeus, and then you had the lower temple and the um, higher temples, uh, courts that existed. So you looked at this area, and basically it was a cliff face, and it was part of a hill system like Knox Mountain, and you look at it and you see coming out of it these caves, and in front of it they built these these key temples where they would worship, where they would praise, where they would glorify their gods. A really strange place when you go there. You can imagine what it would be like. I mean, the god Pan, he was half human and half goat. His, his bottom half of his body was a, a goat and his top half was a human and, and he was actually quite ugly and he always had problems with, with love and problems in life and he, he, he kind of he, he chased after nymphs if you read Greek history, which I'm sure you, you all love to do. And, and he was a real kind of loser and, and he couldn't do this and couldn't do that. And, and, but then he'd get himself into trouble and there's all these stories about, but they worship this God. Now it's in this context that Jesus arrives in the north and as he's around these small villages with this occultic center to the glory of evil demonic gods, that he asks a question. And because the the gospel of Mark is hinged on this moment. This is a moment where it is hinged. We've seen in the gospel of Mark up until this point, the power of God being revealed. It's like the gospel of Mark is power moment, power moment, power moment after moment. I mean, Mark just wants to communicate Jesus has the power. He is mighty. He's magnificent. He is all powerful. But here, the hinge moves towards the passion, towards something remarkable. And this is a central point of this. And this is why there are something that is interesting. He says, He says, on the way. This little phrase here, on the way, the way. What they're realizing, what they're highlighting is that Jesus is now shifting gear and he's on the way to the cross. He's on the way to explaining about what's going on. He's on the way. Something is taking place. Something that is remarkable and that is taking place. And then he says to them, with the backdrop of Uh, of all these temples, the backdrop of all this occultic activity, far in the north, he said, who do people say I am? Well, the answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say that you're a prophet. Other words, amongst the normal people, Jesus' popularity was strong. In fact, what they said was, you are from God. We know you're from God. We know that you are from God. And in this setting, they reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others a prophet. And then he turns and says, but what do you say? You can imagine the silence at this moment. You can imagine at this moment, they're going, what are we going to say? looking down. Uh, what are we going to say? What do you say? Who am I? This is the moment. And Peter steps forward and he says, clearly, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. At that moment, he said it. He said it. 
You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one from God. You are the Redeemer. You are the one to liberate. You are the one that comes to free us. You are the Christ. What a moment. What a moment in time. What a moment in history. What a moment he realizes. See, in the shadow of all the ancient gods, in the shadow of the temple there built to Caesar Augustus, there in the shadow of, of the place of worship for the god Pan, there with all of the ancient gods of Zeus and all the tyranny and the wickedness and the darkness of the Roman Empire, right there in the shadow of that, he declares, you are the Messiah. You are the answer for this world. That's who you are. I believe in you. And sometimes we have just got to remind ourselves in the middle of the world that we live in that Christ is the Messiah, that he is Lord, that he's our Savior. We are surrounded by so many pressures, but we mustn't let the world around us uh, affect us. We mustn't uh, affect us. We mustn't let the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and the gods of this age and the strange goings on affect us because we know who we have believed in. And we live in an age. I mean, I just heard the other day that there in uh, uh, Salmon Arm and that area, <clears throat> after, the, after COVID, there are now three witchcraft shops have opened. And I've, I've heard that now people are gathering and they're meeting in woods and they're, they're involving and they're, they're creating red tents where they can go and, and do witchcraft and, and be involved in kind of these kind of spiritual practices. And at first we might say, well, that's terrible, of course. But I want to tell you, it is a symptom of our age because people are lonely. People are desperate. People are looking for an answer. People feel the turbulence of this world and they they're turning to spiritual things, but we know that at the end, that the only answer is Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so that doesn't scare me. It doesn't intimidate me. In fact, going and being raised in a kind of new age environment and going to a new age school before I was converted... Um, I know that those people who look for the spiritual in the, in the wilderness, in what the God of Pan might offer, are searching for something within their lives because they have an emptiness and they have a loneliness. But what this chapter really tells us in the shadow of the great temples of uh, Philippi of Caesarea is very simply that I am the Messiah. I have come to liberate you. And when you meet people who are spiritually lost in darkness, don't back away from them because their expression of their darkness is that they are looking for something and they just have not found the Lord. Jesus Christ yet. They have not found it. And I often find people who are searching spiritually and doing strange things, often when you win them, they become the most fervent disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. That question changes our whole life. 
Because when we say, who do you say the Lord Jesus Christ is? And the answer you give is the answer that Zach spoke of this morning, which was the triune God. Then it changes everything about the way that we live. It changes about every choice we make. It should change our whole world because we know that when we make that statement that you are Christ, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Lord, then it should radically change our whole heart and our whole life. Sad thing is that sometimes it doesn't, does it? It doesn't change our devotion. It doesn't change our prayer life. It doesn't change our attitudes. But Peter says it. And what does Jesus say? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. It's like, shh. Now, why is this? Well, of course, the kind of Messiah that Peter is expecting is not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. And this kind of language that I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, could demand a stoning at that moment, could create a problem. And he knows that if this is not handled the correct way, they've made that announcement, they've made that glorious moment where it's hinged on the gospel that you are the Christ. And suddenly Jesus shuts him down and says, I don't want to speak about this. Why? He's saying, because I, really, I do not want you to interfere in the plans and the purpose of what God has for happening right now. And he then began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine taking, you've just declared, you are the Messiah, Come over here, Jesus. I, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you off. I'm going to tell you. I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, is not the one to tell off. But what caused him to do this? What caused him to do it was his belief that Jesus, the Messiah, is not going to go through all of this. No way. He mustn't suffer. He mustn't be rejected. He's not going to be, uh, be put to shame by chief priests and teachers of the law. He must, he's, he's not going to be killed. This is unthinkable because in Peter's mind, the Messiah is somebody that just comes in glory. In, in 4 Ezra, it talks about the Messiah coming in power like an eagle. In 4 Ezra, it talks about a lion arriving. This was part of their culture. You might say, my Bible doesn't have four Ezra in. Well, no, it doesn't because it's in the Procopher. Uh, but it's part of what was part of the ancient thinking. And so their whole mind was the Messiah is this triumphant, powerful force that won't be shamed, that won't suffer, that won't have problems. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. No, he's not the Messiah they're expecting. He is an unexpected Messiah who is a Messiah that will be nailed to a cross with splinters of a cross. And he is a Messiah that will bring salvation to the whole world through his death and therefore through his resurrection. So he says, 
That's why he's rebuking him. He's rebuking him because he's like, no, no, you, Jesus, you've got your theology wrong. No, you're going to, you, you know, we're going to like, we're going to rise up. You're going to do powerful things. The angels are going to descend. We're all going to, the nations are going to fall. We're going to reign. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be like a mega day. Come on. It's going to be like all the superheroes put together. This is going to be incredible. Jesus, re- so he rebukes Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's a bit of a rebuking going on here. Rightly so. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The answer to the question is this. Peter, you're trying to do it your way. You're trying to do it your plan. You're trying to do it in your power, in your belief. Get behind me because I'll tell you something. God has his plan. God has his way. And God is working his way. And nothing must interfere with the plan of God. And it's a very dangerous thing to step from being driven by your, your human plan and not in our lives surrendering to the will of God. In each one of our lives, surrendering to the will of God. But this is, this is the context. You see, Peter has his way of looking at something. And Jesus knows his way. And he knows that actually it is completely about what needs to be achieved. He is the Messiah, but he is the Messiah that will be nailed to a cross and will give his life for all of humanity. And that wasn't in the game plan for many many believers at this time. They couldn't understand it. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus embarks three times to explain to disciples what's going on. And three times they do not get it. Number one, we've seen the moment here in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says to him, I must die, I must go, I must be condemned by the priest. And, and, and Peter's response is, no, that's not right. I rebuke you, Jesus, for that, number one. Number two is Mark chapter 9, verse 30, where they start to talk, and Jesus says to them, the Son of Man must be crucified, the Son of Man must die, and everything. Number three is, of course, Mark 10, 32, where again he talks about that and says, I must die, I must go, I must go to the cross. I mean, Jesus is making it really clear. 
Three chapters, three moments. But what is the context for the disciples? It's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. Context number one in Mark chapter 8 is this. Peter rebukes him and says, no. In other words, he responds by, I disagree with you, Jesus, on this plan. In Mark chapter 9, they are arguing about who will be the greatest when, when the glory of God comes. Okay? And in Mark chapter 10... James and John are debating with their mother gets involved. Always a dangerous thing when your mother gets involved. With their mother gets involved and says, who will sit at the right hand and left hand of you on a throne in heaven? Like, I'd like my boys to have a throne. Who's going to sit at the right hand? Who's going to sit at the left hand? I'd really like them to have a throne, right? Notice that Jesus is talking to them again and again about him dying on the cross, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be crucified three times. And what do they do? They respond with, that can't be right. I want to be the greatest. Oh, give me a throne. There is a danger in every one of our lives that when we're faced with the cross of Christ... There is still a danger that our own egos, our own desires, our own rights, we want to put that first. I've got my idea about the way it should be, God. And God, I need you to fall into line with me. Right? My rights, my opinions. I want to be... I've got this, Jesus, it's, it's not the way I planned it. And Jesus says again and again, will you just look at me and look at the cross and look at the cross because the answer is in the cross. Because what Jesus is now teaching them is if you have the revelation of the Messiah, then you're on the journey to become a disciple. And what this teaches about is he's teaching about the way to be a disciple. And where does that happen? How does that take place? How can he not spell it out more to them and be more honest? But sometimes we're just blind. He's spelling it out to them, but they can't see it. For whoever wants to save their lives must lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel will save it. You see, what he's actually saying is is that he's going to lay down his life. And then for you and I to be true disciples, we have to learn to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. In other words, we put Jesus first. That's hard, isn't it? Because we've got to make lots of right decisions and lots of right choices. We've got to go, which way am I going to do? I'm going to choose to compromise or not. I'm going to go this way. I heard of a great story of a, a Fijian couple. And this um, Fijian lady, she gave a testimony. She's working at our Bible college, CBC. And um, she came for a job interview. And they said, well, how did you get saved? And she said, well... I met, I met my husband uh, like years ago. He 
you know, through, through, I guess, through a dating app or something, and we were both Fijian, and we said, oh, shall we get together? And so we came together, and, um, and we had coffee together, and we were chatting about uh, different things. And then he looked at me, and he said, you know, I can't really, honestly, um, date you. You're very nice, but I'm a Christian, and you're not. And so it's over. But thanks very much. And she was a little bit like, Wow. I'm not impressed with you at all. And he said, but, but can I give you a gift as we leave? He said, here, have a Bible and just read the Bible and see what happens. So she said, well, I, I was really, I've been on a lot of dates, but I'd never been given a Bible. And, and I took the Bible away and, uh, and I thought, he's a jerk and uh, I'm not bothering with him. And, but I did pick up the Bible, and I decided, okay, I'll read it. So she read the whole of the Bible, and at the end of it, she got converted to Jesus Christ. She said, and then five years later, I bumped into him, and now he's my husband. <laughs> I love that. You see, being a follower of Christ means that we lay down our own personal desires, and we say, thy will, not my will. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. But what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And when he comes, his Father in glory with the holy angels. What's he saying? He's saying very simply, if you follow the man that is nailed to the cross, then you are choosing to pick up your cross and follow Christ. You see, when you get the revelation, who am I? Well, you're, you're a good teacher. You're a great man. You, you bring many truths. As C.S. Lewis said, you can't say that about Jesus because if he, he said he was God, he said... He was, he was, him and the father were one. You can't just say he's a good teacher. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord God. In fact, C.S. Lewis also said he's either the Lord God or he is from the very pit of hell. He's evil because of what he says, because he's leading everybody astray. And when you have the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is King... Then you're saying, well, what do I do next? And Jesus says, die to yourself. Give it all up. What do you do next? Pick up your cross and follow me. Be willing to know. And let me spell it out for you. And let me tell you that as a follower of Christ, you are called to follow me. And it's not easy. It's not perfect. You will go through tough times. But there will come a day when the glory of God will open and the angels will descend and God will come in his glory. Now are you willing to follow me? The moment you say, I believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world, is the moment we have to say, I give up my life and I make Jesus Lord. And not only that, it's the moment you say, 
I pick up my cross and I follow the way of Jesus and I lay my life down. See, it's a frightening thing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord, but then live a half-hearted, lukewarm Christian existence. Aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) I've been preaching this to myself all week. Because I'm going, okay. I give up. I give up. I hand over. I am not ashamed of you. I'm going to live in this adulterous, sinful generation. I'm going to stand for Christ. I want to serve him completely in my life. I think this is wonderful. Because actually I want to say to you that Jesus Christ is worth it. It's worth living a life completely devoted to Jesus the Messiah. It's not going to be easy. The way of the cross, the way of the journey, but we have to pick up our cross and we have to follow Christ. But the rewards will be immense and glorious and wonderful. And it all boils down to lordship. Lordship. Am I willing to make the Lord Jesus Christ Lord of my life? And I want to say I am, whatever that means. And have been. And it's imperfect. And I'm trying to work it out sometimes. And I feel the weight of the calling. And I feel the challenge to push farther and go deeper. But because the veil has been lifted. And because I've now seen the truth. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Christ. Then I have no option just to give everything to God and stop trying to be the one on the throne. Stop trying to be the one who is the greatest. Stop trying to argue with Jesus. Let Jesus come aside here. Let's just talk this through. It doesn't work. What works is I give my whole life to him and I choose to follow him in my life. And that's the challenge of this morning. The challenge of this morning through this final question is who do they say I am? Well, lots of people say lots of things about Jesus. But who do you say I am? And if the answer is you are the Lord, the Savior of the world, then that has to change the way we live. Isn't that true? It's got to. And maybe what is your next step? To change the way we live. Let's stand together. Maybe you have not. Or you've forgotten. 
I want to invite you this morning to get right with God. To say, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to put Jesus first. I've been on the road a long time, but right this morning, I'm going to get right with God. I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of living. I'm going to get right with God. And in this generation at this time, it's, we need people that are willing to pick up the cross of Christ and follow him. Uh, God is looking for us. We've been tested. We've been sent to our bedrooms for two years. And the church has reappeared. And he's saying, what are you like? Have you changed? Are you ready to live? Are you a stronger, purer, devoted church in your own life? Are you willing Let's just pause and pray. Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we choose to get right with God. Lord Jesus, we choose to say that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. You are the triune God. You are the Savior of the world. And I choose you, no matter what the cost. I choose you. I choose you against the gods of this age, against the Julius Caesars, against the gods of Pan and Zeus and this age that we live in. I choose Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I choose you. I recommit my life. I get it right this morning, Lord. And I say, yes, yes, yes. I choose you, Lord. I lay down my thrones I want to climb on. I lay down my greatness. I want to be great. I lay down my opinion of endless of why I think it should be. And I say, Lord, I lay down my life and I lose my life and I pick it up in you. I lose my life and I pick it up in you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. If you need to seal that decision and receive prayer, then come and, um, come and get some prayer. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come and I'll ask the elders to come. And whether in the song or afterwards, just come forward and say, I want prayer. I want to keep running the race. I want to keep going for it. And... Um, Actually, I just wandered in this church my first time. I've just heard this and I'd like to become a Christian maybe. I don't know. Come and have a chat to somebody at the front and they'll be here for you through this song and beyond to help you find uh, good news in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's great.